back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director at Word on Fire. Joining us as he does for each one of our discussion episodes is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey Brandon, always good to see you. Now today we're gonna to be talking about a famous Christian rocker who has announced that he stopped believing in God. But before we get there, I wanna talk about another famous musician who just released a brand new album, and that's your great hero, Bob Dylan. Have you heard it? What do you think about it? Tell us. Yeah, I'm listening to it uh, now. So, you know, I, I kind of long for the days when I was a kid, you go to the record store and you buy one of these big LPs with the album cover. Since we made the whole digital uh, transference thing, I, I'm a little bit lost, but what I'm doing, I'm just listening to it on my Spotify, so on my iPhone, you know, and my earplugs. So I'm currently listening to it, and when I listen to Bob Dylan's records, um, I listen to the songs like several times and then try to get my own sense of the lyrics or maybe I'll look up if someone has, has transcribed the lyrics because Bob has never been the easiest person to understand all the time, you know, and as he's gotten older it's a little more difficult. But I like it a lot. I like it musically. It's, you know, he's been experimenting with a lot of different styles and he always goes back to kind of classic 12-bar blues is one of his favorite forms. But he also loves this kind of country swing and then even even though know, he did all these Sinatra covers, the last three albums. So more like classical American pop style, um, and exploring all that, but then lyrically, he's in a really interesting space. It's as though he's kind of taking all of American history, all of, of musical history, uh, classical references, and he's kind of throwing them together in this great jumble. Of, um, of his poetry, and it's, you know, fascinating. The thing with Bob Dylan is you, you never come out of a song saying, oh, I got it, uh-huh, oh, that's what it means, real clear, uh-huh. No, they're, they're always elusive and allusive and strange, and, and it's something of Scorsese, who's a great friend of Bob Dylan, said about films. He said, you rarely remember the plot of a movie. What you remember are moments in the movie, and I've always felt that's right. You know, think of like Goodfellas or something in one of his movies. Well, what's the plot of it? I guess I could kind of reconstruct it. But what you remember are moments, you know, a scene, a, a look, a, a, a bit of dialogue. Well, same with Bob Dylan songs is it's like, okay, what's that song about? Well, I can't always tell you, but there, gosh, there are moments in it that are so kind of weird and interesting and, and you know, provocative. So anyway, I, I like it a lot. I'm currently listening to it. Maybe I'll write something about it when I, I really get a better handle on it. So the new album is called Rough and Rowdy Ways. You can yeah. find it on Spotify, iTunes. You can go buy a CD, I think, if they still have CDs of it. So check it out. And, and it's we'll do filled some more with it. religion, as he has from the beginning. It's filled with religion. All right, well today we're gonna to be talking about another Christian singer. Uh, this is a man named John Steingard. I should probably say former Christian singer because after being the front man for a uh, Christian band, mostly evangelicals, I think, named Hawk Nelson, John has recently revealed that he no longer believes in God. Um, his deconversion was a pretty big deal. It was covered by the Today Show, People Magazine, NPR, numerous other outlets, both mainstream and Christian. He sort of came out about this on Instagram where he said, after growing up in a Christian home and being a pastor's kid, playing and singing in a Christian band and having the word Christian in front of most of the things in my life, I am now finding that I no longer believe in God. 
Now, in the rest of the Instagram post, it's, it's pretty long. It's almost an essay-length explanation. He gives several reasons why he no longer believes in God. And why I thought we should talk about them, Bishop, is because most of the reasons on his lips are on the lips of all the yeah. nuns, the evangelized. There's not really anything novel about these reasons. They're extremely common. So I thought we could talk through some of them. So sure. here's the first one. He says that he initially believed in God because, and I'm quoting him here, when you grow up in a community that holds a shared belief, and that shared belief is so incredibly central to everything, you simply adopt it. Everyone I was close to believed in God, accepted Jesus into their hearts, prayed for signs and wonders, and participated in church, youth groups, conferences, and ministries. So I did too, he recalled. So he's kind of gesturing that really the only reason I believed in God is because everyone else around me did. Is you find this being pretty common among young people today? Well, yeah, but it's also frustrating, Brandon, because name one person ever who didn't grow up in some kind of community that conditioned the way he thought and spoke and believed and acted. That's called being human. That any, anyone at any time in history is gonna grow up within a certain cultural framework of shared assumptions, common language, uh, common practices. You say, oh, I'm in a you know, completely atheist household. Well, that's a set of beliefs and practices and so on. Um, why is that somehow the default position? You know, the default position is that I'm not a believer. No, that's a, that's a whole ideology. That's a whole worldview. And willy-nilly, every single one of us grows up in one of these worlds. I grew up as a Catholic, and indeed with devout parents who took me to Mass and, and brought me to Catholic school and so on. Well, does that mean I'm, I'm just destined for all time in a totally uncritical way to live that way? No, no. At a certain point, you begin to raise questions. You seek answers. You seek to understand more deeply. You come to an assessment. You say, I wonder about this or I accept that. And, and then eventually you appropriate and make your own, in your own distinctive way, the tradition that has shaped you. You leave behind elements of it that you have come to say, well, maybe that's a little strange or that's not quite right. But that's called being human. I mean, so to make the claim that, well, because I came of age in a Christian household, it's only that I was just kind of brainwashed and conditioned from the time I was a kid. Well, we, we all were in a way, you know. But I would say to him now, okay, maybe you've come to uh, that moment of critique that should leave, lead to what Paul Ricoeur famously called the second naivete. In other words, we all begin with a kind of naivete, like, yeah, we're kids and we just take it in. But then you come to a critical moment, and then you can appropriate it on your own terms in this second naivete. It sounds to me like he's sort of poised in between those two places. I would say, don't, don't give up. Keep going. Keep asking the questions and look for good answers. We've talked a lot on this show about the current revival of apologetics and evangelization, so many apologetical books and conferences and series and all that kind of stuff, but a lot of the apologetics is aimed at adult readers, maybe college readers. I still think we haven't done a great job feeding apologetics to high schoolers, middle schoolers, and younger, and you see that here with his story, that he's acknowledging the only reason I believed in God or went to church or followed Christ was because everyone else around me was doing mm -hmm. it. Nobody gave him any good reasons that said, well, 
actually, the reason you should become a Christian is because it's true, not just because everyone else is doing it, but yeah. it, I almost feel a sense of burden that like we've all failed, not just him, but other young people like him that as they're growing up, we're just not giving them reasons to believe. We don't, Brandon, too, I, I don't want to sound judgmental here. There's so much in the evangelical Protestant tradition that I admire, and I really do, and I think they've, they've taught us a lot as, as Catholics. We can learn from their great evangelical enthusiasm, their Christocentrism, their, their sense of the primacy of the Bible, and I mean, all these good things. But a danger, and I see it all the time, is the lack of a disciplined intellectual tradition that would allow them to engage uh, these questions. I, this, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I, I wouldn't have uh, seen this, but now I take it for granted. When I come across, uh, especially really angry atheists on my uh, YouTube sites, I, I'm no longer surprised, although I was in the beginning, how many are former fundamentalist Christians, are former evangelical Protestants. And once you engage them, begin scratching the surface, it'll come out. Some version of, yeah, I was fed all this, you know, as a kid, I was fed all this nonsense, and then I, you know, questioned it. And see, I would say, Great, I'm glad you questioned it, man. I'm really glad, it's probably when you were an adolescent, perfectly normal, you began to question. The sad thing is there wasn't someone there who could provide from within the religious tradition really good answers. But what happened to a lot of these people, and I hope, well, I guess he is already there, he said he's no longer a believer, is he followed the trajectory of those questions into unbelief, when in a better world, he would have followed them to someone who had a really good answer. All right, let's keep moving. So John says, though he grew up as a Christian at home, he felt uncomfortable with certain aspects of the religion, explaining that praying in public in particular, and this is his words, felt like some kind of weird performance art and, quote, emotional cries such as, Holy Spirit, come fill this place, always felt clunky and awkward. Now, I'm guessing a lot of this is because of his role as like a worship leader or a yeah. public musician, and I'm assuming th that's more prevalent in that world. But then he says, I figured I was overthinking all these things. Then this was the beginning of my doubt. I began to develop the reflex to simply push it down and soldier on, but this was the beginning. Um, what do you make of that, this uncomfortability about prayer and spiritual uh, verbiage? Behind it is a good instinct, which is um, the push toward sincerity. Uh, what was probably bugging him was the suspicion anyway that people were doing things and they weren't really feeling it. They were saying things they didn't entirely believe. There was something maybe hyper-emotional or an attempt to force the issue, you know, by using certain language or gesturing in certain ways. And that produced in his mind the suspicion of insincerity. Okay, I get that. We don't like religious insincerity. It's not a good thing. Now, was everybody doing that, in fact, insincere? My guess is no, that many were authentically expressing their faith. If he didn't feel it, I would say, fine, don't do it. You know, I share a lot of um, John Henry Newman and other people like that, a certain suspicion of what they call enthusiasm in religion which is a kind of hyper-emotionalism or a hyper-stress on emotionalism. I would, if, you know, if this kid came to me within a Catholic context, I'd say, good, let's start reading Aquinas. Let's start reading Chesterton. Let's start reading Newman. Let's start reading Bonaventure. Let's start reading Augustine together. That maybe you are given to a more intellectual approach to the faith. 
maybe this hyper-emotionalism is not your thing. I'll give you a concrete example. Um, and I, mind you, please, I have great respect for the Catholic uh, charismatic tradition. I do. Uh, and I've known many people in it. But when I was a 20-year-old kid, I'm, I'm in the seminary, and I was sent for a summer to a parish. And at the parish is a wonderful guy, a great Chicago priest, who was very involved in the charismatic renewal. And he brought me to my first uh, charismatic meeting. And um, I was 20 years old, and I'm taking it in, and I just felt, I, I, this is not me. I, I just, I don't get this. This is not the way I do it. And I never went back. Now again, I don't say that judgmentally to those who do find a lot of spiritual uh, richness in that tradition. I knew it wasn't for me, and it still isn't for me. Okay, good. I like the Catholic faith, big old tent, we never threw anything out. You're into that, that helps you in your spiritual life, terrific. It's not my thing, it just won't be. I remember one of my teachers at Mundelein, I, I was telling that story some years later, and he goes, oh yeah, you're, you're too much of a rationalist. And he didn't mean that as a put-down. He said, you're, you're too much of a kind of a thinker, and so you're, you're not going to respond to that. But other people do. Fine, fine. And they might read Chesterton and say, ah, oh, right, I don't know what that guy's talking about. And they find, you know, they find uplift somewhere else. Fine. So like in, in the case of this young man, I'd say, okay, maybe that's not your thing. That's not your style of doing it. So there's a lot of other ways we can pursue the religious thing. So John Steingard continues, the first part was kind of more experiential, his experiences growing up, and he didn't really yeah. believe, then he had these uncomfortable prayer experiences, but now he moves into actual reasons why he's dropped Christianity, and they center around two. One's the problem of evil, predictably, and the other one has to do with various problems with the Bible. So let's look at each one of those. So first yeah. one, the problem of evil. And I should mention here that uh, Matt Nelson, the assistant director of the Word on Fire Institute, did a great piece for the Word on Fire blog mm -hmm. titled John Steingard, Atheism and the Scandal of Evil, where he focuses yeah. specifically on this one objection. But here's how Steingard puts it. These are all his own words. There were things that just didn't make sense to me. If God is all loving and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Can he not do anything about it? Does he choose not to? Is the evil in the world a result of his desire to give us free will? Okay then, but what about famine and disease and floods and all the suffering that isn't caused by humans and our free will? If God is loving, why does he send people to hell? So kind of a whole litany of objections all swirling around this problem of evil. What would you, what would you say to someone like Steingard who brought these to you? I'd say good questions. The smartest people in the tradition from the Bible on have raised those questions. Take a good hard look at the book of Job, I'd say. You want to see the Bible itself wrestling with this problem. You know, the book of Job, you could say, is a critical moment within the biblical revelation because there's a kind of too easy proposal. You find it like in the book of Deuteronomy. You people be good and you follow God's law and you'll prosper. You, you deviate from God's law and, and you won't. Well, here's Job who's described as he's this great guy. He follows the law. He's, he's, he loves God. And yet every possible bad thing happens to him. So within the Bible itself, you've got people who are wondering about this problem. Look at the great tradition. The smartest people, from Irenaeus to Augustine to Anselm to Thomas Aquinas to John Paul II, all wrestle with this problem. It's, it's the, finally, I would say, only really serious objection to the claim that God exists. Okay, so I'd say that. I'd say, I, I'm not going to put down your question. It's, a, it's an altogether valid question. 
I've often said Thomas Aquinas, in one of his objections to the claim that there is a God, sums it up perfectly. Um, God is described as infinite good. If, if God is infinite good, that would seem to eliminate all evil. Because if, if one of two contraries is infinite, the other would be destroyed. But there is evil. Therefore, there's no God. That's a neat little syllogism that Aquinas puts in the mouth of one of his objectors, you know. So, first move, darn good question. And I don't know any serious believer who doesn't at some point wrestle with it. Now, uh, and then two further moves, one more philosophical, the other biblical. Thomas's answer, God is so good and so wise that he can permit certain evils to bring out of them a greater good. And then he gives several examples of that principle, and I think everyone can at least grasp the principle, right? That certain goods wouldn't exist without certain evils. And now, to anticipate one of his uh, other questions, one of those goods is freedom. You show me how you create a finite, conflictual world that also has freedom in it, and where you don't find the abuse of freedom. So if, if God wants there to be freedom, he has to allow for the possibility of the abuse of freedom. One more step, if that's the free will defense, and he alludes to that, is there also, as John Polkinghorne says, a kind of free process defense, namely that God wants a world that exists on its own terms, not being manipulated in a, in a puppeteering sort of manner, but a world that has its own integrity, its own causal um, integrity. Uh, in that world, to allow free process, you allow for things to fall away and to come into conflict and, you know, now the earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and etc. under that rubric. Now, what I'm doing, as you well know, Brandon, is we're kind of gesturing toward an answer. Not giving an answer as though, oh, I got it now, no problem. But setting certain rational parameters for approaching it. And I promise that's the philosophical, then the more biblical, I bring them back to Job and say, okay, the Bible itself has your question. What's the answer? Look at the longest speech given by God in the Bible. And it's that speech, that answer to Job, you know. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? In other words, why would you ever think that in your finite mind you could grasp the workings and purposes of an infinite mind? that's controlling all of space and time. So Job doesn't give the answer, oh, I get it now, oh, I see precisely why I'm suffering. No, but it invites you to a new spiritual space where you surrender to the infinite wisdom of God, which lies beyond your ken, you know? Now, again, have I solved the problem of suffering? Of course not. But I've, I've gestured toward an answer. I've circumscribed the the space in which the answer might be found. You know what I'm saying? And that's what our tradition has done with this, you know, famously uh, uh, problematic issue. I guess what still bugs me, Bishop, is in both traditions, the evangelical tradition that Steingart's coming out of and our Catholic tradition, there have been so many books, videos, yeah. podcasts, resources that are accessible, like not even high-level academic wrestling with this problem, but stuff made for people like Steingart, that if only someone had gotten him yeah. something by 
Alvin Plantinga or William Lane Craig on the evangelical sure. side or Aquinas or his popularizers on our side, so many of these challenges or objections maybe not would have been totally convincingly answered, but they at least wouldn't be as potent. They wouldn't have led to him leaving the faith. Yeah, and there's something, Brandon, and I gestured toward this, very liberating when you say, when you realize, oh gosh, really, really smart people before me have, have asked this same question. Because people at times can feel like, oh my gosh, everyone around me believes, and I've got this question, and I'm the only one. I, I'm the only one that is having this. No, man, believe me, lots and lots and lots of really smart Christians and biblical people have wrestled with this question. And that in itself should give you a kind of comfort or a kind of, maybe you can take a deep breath and say, okay, I, I now can look at this more you know, honestly and not in a, in a panic of disaffiliation like, because I've got this problem that no one's ever had before. I'm, I'm through with the operation. You know? You've talked about this before. I think it was in a previous Q&A where it might have been a parent asking, what do I do about my child who comes to me with all these questions or challenges or objections? And you said, you just modeled it, the first move is to acknowledge and affirm yeah. these are great questions, yeah. smart people have asked them, and you're sort of cutting it off at the pass and making them much more receptive to hearing you. Yeah, quite right. Okay, we only got about 10 minutes left here, and he's got a whole bunch of other objections, so there's yeah, no way we're going to be able to inad adequately answer them all, but all the rest of them swirl around the Bible. I'm just going to read the yeah. litany here, and you pick what, which ones you want to res respond <laughs> okay. to. So Steingart explained that my whole life, people always said, you have to go back to what the Bible says. I found, however, that consulting and discussing the Bible didn't answer my questions. It only amplified them. And then here come the specific objections. Why does God seem so pissed off in most of the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden he's a loving father in the New Testament? Why does he say not kill, but then instruct Israel to turn around and kill men, women, and children to take the promised land? Why does God let Job suffer horrible things just to win a bet with Satan? Why does he tell Abraham to kill his son, more killing again, and then basically says, just kidding, that was a test. Why does Jesus have to die for our sins, more killing again? If God can do anything, can he forgive someone without them dying? I mean, my parents taught me to forgive people, and nobody dies in that scenario. Suffice it to say that when I began to believe that the Bible was simply a book written by people as flawed and imperfect as I am, that was when my belief in God truly began to unravel. Wow, what do you, what do you, where do you begin with that? You know, I'd say this, Brandon, um, this is why sola scriptura is a bad idea. Uh, and I, I don't, I guess I am being a little provocative when I say that. And I understand there's nuanced ways that, that Protestants uh, take that famous principle. But from a Catholic perspective, it's just like not a good idea to say, just go back to the Bible. <laughs> because as he correctly it, it points out here, the Bible on its own is going to generate questions and conflicts and puzzlements, right? Because as he says, well, I, I sounds like God is love, but yet he does this. And he says, don't kill, but then he orders that. And, well, look at the history of theology. Go back to the Middle Ages. When someone like Thomas Aquinas was uh, brought on as a magister, a master of, of uh, theology, his first responsibility was to preach, right? He's a predicator, he's a preacher. Well, if you're predicator, you've got to be a Bible commentator because you preach on the Bible, correct? Well, now here's the, here's the moment. If you're a Bible commentator, 
you will naturally confront what the medievals called questiones disputate, disputed questions. And I just raised some of them. He just raised some of them. Those are classic questiones disputate. What, come, what comes out of questiones disputate? Theology. Theology is the rational attempt to try to understand the revelation given in the Bible. Or if you want to change it, to resolve the disputed questions that naturally arise from biblical interpretation. When you bracket theology, and the answer is always the same, go back to the Bible, go back to the Bible, that's not going to solve the problem. And he's witnessing to that. See, I would say to him, I'll say it sort of just bluntly and comically, I'd say, become a Catholic, because you're not going to solve this problem on purely scriptural grounds. It'll just keep, as he says, I think quite rightly, it'll just keep generating problems. So that's my general answer is, kid, what you need is theology. <laughs> Read the smartest people in the Christian tradition, all of whom were grounded in the Bible, all of whom, trust me, saw every single issue that you're bringing up, and then thought their way through to a resolution. I'll give you one example from the very early church, from the second into the third century. Origen of Alexandria, who knew the Bible as well as any theologian in our tradition, knew the Bible as well as any evangelical uh, preacher today. Origen saw this problem. He saw, boy, the Bible seems to culminate in the revelation of, of the nonviolent Jesus dying on the cross, right? But yet, in the Old Testament, we have all these commands of God to put the ban on the Amalekites and so on and so forth. What did Origen do? Now this is not after Darwin, not after the Scopes monkey trial. This is in the third century. Origen said, we should read those texts as spiritual allegories because we should read the whole Bible in light of the culmination of the Bible, which is Jesus. The crucified lamb standing as though slain. He's the interpretive key. So now we read them, so Israelites against the Egyptians, against the Babylonians, against the Amalekites, and so on and so forth. What are those but spiritual allegories of the struggle of what is right and good and spiritual in me against what is sinful? And I must indeed put the ban on what's sinful and dysfunctional in me. Because if I play around with it, I battle it, but you know, to a limited degree, I, I let some of it <laughs> survive. What's going to happen? It'll overwhelm me. Put the ban on it. So Origen, early, early on in the Christian tradition, provided a spiritual hermeneutic to deal with a lot of those texts that are, are bothering uh, our friend here so much. Now, I just give that as one example of how a theologian, so not, uh, mind you, knew the scripture as well as anyone in the whole tradition, but did not subscribe to a sola scriptura view but rather theologized about the scripture and, and thereby set the tone for a lot of, of uh, the theology of Christianity. So I, I would say to him, I mean, move into a Catholic interpretive framework and, and you'll find, I, we could look at each one of his objections now, but you'll find some of the smartest people in the tradition who've provided answers for those questions. 
If listeners want a good contemporary book on a lot of these questions, our friend Trent Horn, he's an apologist at Catholic Answers, he has a whole book called Hard Sayings, mm -hmm. which go through a lot of these dark passages, hard sayings of the Bible, so I'd highly recommend that. Bishop, let's close with John Steingard's closing words in his big confession. Here's what he says. I'm open to an idea that God is there. I'd prefer it if he was. I suspect if he is there, he is very different than what I was taught. But until then, I feel like the best thing I can do is be honest. Stepping away from belief in God has felt like a loss in some ways, but it's felt like freedom in many others. I'm not sure how much this will rock the boat. I don't know if this will surprise anyone, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that I finally worked up the courage to tell my story, to share my deepest truth, and that feels like freedom too. Bishop, yeah, what do you say to that? Fine. What he's found freedom from is a childish faith. He's been liberated from, a, from the first naivete. He's been liberated from what he received uncritically as a child, and he's reached a level of, of intellectual attainment where he's asked the right questions that have led him past a naive, childish faith. Good. That is a real liberation. But, but, I would say follow that other instinct you have that, but I, I feel I've lost something too, and I, I wish God were there. Good. Follow that instinct because that will lead you to the second naivete. But what you got to do, you got to go now through the crucible of theology. You have to, you've honestly asked the questions, terrific, but don't stop there. Don't stop in a kind of easy adolescent skepticism. Rather, follow those questions to people that have some real answers. And I think you'll find you'll come back to the faith of your childhood, and that's okay, but now in a much more mature and sophisticated way. So I would say yes to both instincts. Yes to, yes, it's a, free, it's a freedom, it's a real liberation. Good, we should leave our, our childish faith behind. But don't forget the legitimate lure of, of the faith that, that really is calling you to a deeper appropriation of it. Uh, and then I'd say, I'd recommend the resources of the Catholic tradition will help you in this regard more than what you'll find in the evangelical tradition. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. Today we have one from John in San Antonio, Texas. And he wants to ask Bishop for some advice on explaining a difficult theological concept to a nun or an unaffiliated mm -hmm. person. Here's his question. Hello, Bishop Barron. This is John from San Antonio. How would you explain to a nun or to someone who doesn't know much about the Catholic faith, how would you explain mm -hmm. to them the magisterium and its role in the church? Thank you. Yeah, I used magister earlier with Thomas Aquinas, right? Magister means like a master or a teacher. So the magisterium is the kind of teaching authority of the church. Uh, you know, I would say to your friend who asked that question, uh, first I'd ask him, does he play baseball? And if he does, then he knows uh, the indispensable role played by an umpire. Even though we kind of boo the umpires when they come on the field, that's the old tradition. I don't know if they still do that. But when I was a kid and you went to a game and the umpires came on, boo, you know, we don't like the umpires. But... Anyone that's serious about baseball likes umpires because without an umpire, the game will devolve very quickly into chaos, right? Because there's going to be uh, close calls. That was a ball. No, that was a strike. He's safe. No, he was out. And if you don't have an umpire to adjudicate that, 
talk to anyone that's ever coached little kids, right? It'll devolve within a minute into bickering and the game is going to be over. Thank God for umpires because umpires are a living voice on the field who apply the rules and principles of baseball to the particular situation and make a call. So the first thing an umpire has to know are the structuring elements of baseball, right? How do you play baseball? What is baseball? What are the limits to it? I always find this interesting. Uh, when I was a kid, I watched a lot of baseball, and the umpires would gather uh, before right, as the game was beginning, and they would discuss the ground rules in a particular stadium. You know, because stadiums are all a bit different, and you know that like Wrigley Field, where I watched baseball, had a, a basket that went around the the uh, fence, and and if the ball went in the basket, it was a home run. You know, so the umpire has to know the general rules of baseball. He's got to know the particulars of this of this stadium and then his job is when there's a close call to decide he's safe he's out that was a home run will people bicker with him yeah they do it all the time they kick dirt on him okay but at the end of the day everyone knows man the umpire's got the final word the magisterium's like that so the church has a structure it's not a it's not a freewheeling debating society it's, it has a structure we hold to certain things, the creed and their doctrines, and we have certain practices that are essential to our life. Are there conflicts and arguments? Yeah, like all the time, like every minute. <laughs> read church history, read present day <laughs> church affairs. We fight all the time, right? Well, when that happens, who decides? Well, at the local level, you, maybe the parish priest would have to intervene. But let's say they still keep fighting. Well, then the local bishop probably has to intervene. Let's say they still keep fighting. Well, then maybe a, a metropolitan bishop has to pronounce something. They still keep fighting. Well, at the end of the day, it has to go to the Pope and to the formal teaching authority of the church in Rome, which makes a call. Yeah, that's right, that's wrong. Without that, the church would devolve like a bad baseball game into endless bickering. So I would say that to your friend, that the magisterium plays an umpiring role, which is essential to the ongoing flow of the church's life. It's, it's like a game in a way, like we're, we're, pl we're playing the Christian game all the time. Without an umpire, it'll devolve into chaos. Well, great question, John. And before we leave here, I'd like to encourage John and everyone watching and listening to join the Word on Fire Institute. I think we're up to around 14,000, 15,000 people from all over the world who are part of this exciting new platform. But it's a place where you can take courses in theology, evangelization, philosophy, culture, and much more. There's a bunch of courses. You have access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs. And then I mentioned last time we were together that we just released the newest edition of our evangelization and culture journal, this beautiful, full-color, smart journal with all sorts of great articles that goes out to every single member of the Institute. So um, if any of that sounds appealing, check it out at wordonfire.institute and join us today. Well, thanks so much for watching and listening. We'll see you guys next time on the Word on Fire show.